Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. Born in Sicily in 1960 and raised in Switzerland, Pietro Scalia is one of the most significant film editors of the last 40 years. Along with multiple films with Oliver Stone, he has made 11 with Ridley Scott, worked with Bernardo Bertolucci, Gus Van Sant, Sam Raimi, and even the Russo brothers and Michael Bay. But Scalia is worthy of his own looming reputation. In films like Goodwill Hunting, he acts as an emotional mechanic, someone who can get under the hood of the soul and knows which gears to crank to make us tick as a species. But conversely, in films like Gladiator, he manages to make wild, sprawling action scenes look coherent and simple. Scalia has made some of the best American movies of the last 50 years, and in August, he was honored at Locarno with the Vision Award. He chose to screen Goodwill Hunting and Black Hawk Down to mark the occasion. Two films which on paper have a very different vibe. Those two films, they seem completely different on the surface, but there was I wanted to show them because they, they have some things that are similar, at least uh, for me, or, or they have some connections that I wanted to maybe uh, point out to, to, uh, to viewers. Also, I mean, they're older films. I mean, time passes me by that, like 20 and, or 25 years old, uh, you know. So one thing was for people that hadn't seen them, for new generations to see those films, because they're both, uh, I think, emotional in, in their own respect. Goodwill Hunting uh, starts from my love of uh, Gus's movies, and I wanted to work with him, but also coming across this uh, amazing screenplay. You know, and when I had the good fortune to, you know, won an Oscar and to be able to, the luxury of choice. Mm. So it was like, yeah, don't take everything that's offered. I, you know, I'm going to maybe not work for a month. I'm going to wait for that script because that was fundamental for me to get a, a good script, something that moves me story-wise, something that I can, you know, work for uh, a year, something different or something that, you know, is interesting. And it must have been exciting to discover the script was written by two Guys yeah. in their twenties. I didn't know who, who Matt they. Man, no one's ever heard. No, of no, them. but the script really. So I, I remember I was in tears reading it. I was laughing. I said, "Oh, awesome! I'm going to get to do a comedy." You know, it's just like. <laughs> but uh, I was at the time. I asked my agent to you know set up a meeting with Gus. You know, because it was really a long shot because Gus already had his own editor. But he said, "Can you?" You know, and so forth. And luckily i was able to do that and uh you know met with him in toronto but he wasn't so you know keen on high because oh you did these big movies you know mm. this is a small film you know blah blah but uh i don't know somehow we hit it off and uh he asked me to stay for dinner which was a good sign and he says hey uh, you want to come and um, meet matt and ben before we go to dinner i said sure so we go over to where matt and ben were living in this condo we walk in and also uh, Ben's brother was there, Casey Affleck. But it was literally, they were just in the kitchen, in the living room, talking. It's just like, you know, like college kids, young kids. But it was like literally the movie. I mean, <laughs> they, they were there. And I turned to Gus and said, can you believe it? I mean, it, he says, yeah, I know. It's just like, so that was uh, my introduction to that. And then uh, what was great about it was really the uh, the written word, the dialogues. That's mm -hmm. what stood out from, from the script. And I love dialogue. I love cutting dialogue. 
to say I think like I do big movies and action, but my thing is the written word. I love good, tight dialogue, you know? Well, I actually, I've, I've heard Good Will Hunting be described as an action movie, but with words. Exactly. That's exactly my point. I constructed it because part of their performances, uh, and that, since they had written and they were so familiar with the word, that they would improvise. So a lot of takes, you know, would be... Um, changes and they would, you know, talk very, uh, very natural, like people talk like on top of each other. Well, that's, uh, that's something that it's difficult to cut from one thing to the other, because obviously if you have two cameras, maybe you can cut back and forth, but with one camera, sometimes it's very hard to open that dialogue. So what happens is that you have to construct uh, by cutting dialogue, but it's not just words. You have to construct parts of words, mm -hmm. syllables from mm -hmm. different takes. So it was kind of like a, a surgery of, of words that you don't see, but at least you have to keep the, the energy of the performance, the, the momentum, the fluidity, so that to your ear sounds normal. But there's a lot of things that are trickery that uh, you don't really see. And with Black Hawk Down, uh, the same thing with action. It wasn't just like action and I'm going to show big explosions and blah, this and that, and they're shooting this. I had to be very specific. I had to be, for myself, had to be specific to understand not only uh, the cause and effect, I wanted to be precise about this happens and that, why does that happen? And also geographically, where are they? There's no main character, whereas that's the opposite. There's 40 characters, but you have to identify. Goodwill Hunting is the opposite. It's about one character. It's about the transformation of character, very specific. But both movies, uh, I think, for me was, uh, I mean, I had a great experience on Goodwill Hunting, the use of music, mm. both our love, uh, Gus and I, of, uh, you know, The Graduate, you know, the, the music of Simon and Garfunkel. So we had Elliot Smith. So that was like, you know, also part of the, uh, the fabric, you know? I and mean, the final shot is effectively just a very uh, oh, uplifting yeah. version of the end of The Graduate. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You got it. Exactly right. That, that feeling, absolutely right. But, you know, we were working with one young musician composer that Gus had met in, you know, in Portland on the streets singing and he had given us cassettes and we were working with those. And then he wrote the song. I felt like sometimes my experience, you know, uh, maybe personally about transformation, about, you know, moving and, you know, being in one place and growing as a, as a person and as a character to experience that and being present, like almost you're there around mm. these guys, the reality of that. And Black Hawk Down, and similarly, even though I've never been to war, it was about what does it feel like? What's the experience like of war? We were criticized, and maybe that's why part of the choice to see it again after so many years. At the time when it came out, I mean, it was the year of 9-11. We had talked about the vulnerability of the United States because mm -hmm. there had been already attacks. But the enemy of the United States kind of saw that uh, the United States is not resolute in what they wanted to do. They did, came very late in the Bosnian war. They didn't do anything. So they saw weakness and that was part of the theme. And it was like, we're, we were working on Black Hawk Down before 9-11 and it became real, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? And so the producers saw it and said, this is very visceral. It's very now, we have to finish it and come out with it. But we were criticized when the film came out, sometimes in Europe, we said, ah, oh, this is another, American, you know, war propaganda and, and so forth, you know, because they don't show the African side. We don't know who they are. It's always the, 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 the point was, it wasn't that story. The story was, what does it feel like to be a soldier? 
That's as simple as that. What is war like? You know, it doesn't matter who you shoot at, who they are. When they shoot at, you're being shot at. What does it mean to be a hero when you have to uh, go and save your, your buddy's life? I mean, you can talk about it, but think about it. Would you do it? That to me was what was interesting about uh, the film. Rewatching it recently, I was struck at how inspired you and Ridley Scott must have been by the opening part of Save for Private Ryan. And I thought, you know, yeah. what what an incredible thing to take that kind of famously visceral, traumatic yeah. opening that no one had ever seen before and said, what if it was an entire movie? Because it, th these things don't end. Well, you know? interesting you mentioned that because Ridley said, we got to top that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that and said, okay, well, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Yeah, how are you going to do that? But funny enough, this is a funny story. I'm out for dinner with friends at a restaurant and uh, I see Spielberg. I tell my friends, oh, look, Spielberg is in there. Oh, yeah, it's, comes to that restaurant in sure. the same neighborhood. And uh, we're waiting to be seated, right? So uh, Spielberg walks out and he sees me because I've known him, worked with him. He was a producer on, on Gladiator. So he comes out and people are waiting and I go, oh, Spielberg, Spielberg. And he comes directly to me and he goes, Pietro, how you doing? Oh, good. How, how are you, right? And people are like, who the hell is this guy? You know? <laughs> he goes, hey, uh, how's Ridley? I said, good. And the film? Oh, great. You know, we're still working on it. Hey, can you say hi to Ridley and tell him uh, I would like to see it? You know, if, if he says, okay, sure, sure, I will. Nice to see you. Next day, I tell uh, Ridley, hey, I saw Stephen. He said, you know, ask about you in the film, you know. Anyway, they got together. He came at the cutting room. Oh, God. And so oh God. <laughs> Ridley, Ridley shows him, you know, part of the film. And Spielberg is there and he goes, wow, wow, like this. Oh, nice. Yeah, and Ridley, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Awesome, awesome thing. So it was a... Uh, I like how even Ridley Scott wants a pat on the back from Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're friends, but there's always that little underlying competition, which is very healthy. <laughs> I wonder with something like Black Hawk Down, which I can't even begin to imagine what the actual script looks like, you know, how early you as an editor would be involved in that process. Because I would imagine quite early on to ensure that visually it all makes sense. Well, it's not really like that. I mean, the thing is, even before I uh, start shooting, I get, you know, really tells me that's his next project. The first thing I did was read the book. And uh, it was really interesting. I mean, you know, I remember the uh, the images of the two soldiers being dragged through uh, the streets with powerful images. But then reading the book and understanding that. But then you see, you read the script, and you go like, "This is doesn't follow a classic structure. There is no main character. It isn't a classic war film where about a young man returning for war or some man talking about the war experience. It's just like." This is what happens within these 18 hours in this event, very specific, you know. When the film started, really it was very specific that we don't have much time. It's very complex action. There's a lot of moving pieces. And I'm not going to go and shoot it in, in a way that big action films are done, in the sense that I'm going to break down the action and all these pieces, and then we'll put it together. Ridley is known for uh, storyboarding himself. He has certain visual, he draws it next to his script, but it doesn't necessarily follow. It's more a, a tool of communicating to people on the set how he visions and he has amazing eye, great composition. You can see from, even from his storyboards, we call them Ridley Grams. 
uh, how the shot will look like. But he chose to shoot everything in one long takes. So with multiple cameras, mm. at times in certain big action scenes, like with up to 11 cameras, helicopter cameras, two steady cam cameras, A and B cameras, sometimes a C unit, crash cameras. So shoot the whole scene at once and you end up doing maybe two or three takes. And there's a no, no CGI effects. Yeah. It's all real. Live action, RPGs on, on wires, explosions. The action was choreographed and orchestrated with, you know, one team crossing a square. Well, we have a steady cam operator behind them. We'll say, don't worry about it. We'll take the steady cam operator out afterwards. Oh, we see the crash cameras there or that. We could do that. Well, let's eliminate that. But the idea was, I'm going to capture everything at once. Now, mm. think about it. 10 cameras, 8 to 10 minute takes. How many minutes is that? A lot. <laughs> but who watches it? I have to. <laughs> so you have to imagine I have a vast amount of footage and I have to dig through it. Because, there, yes, you have a script, you have a specific order of action, but who are they? They all look the same. You know, mm. really had the idea of putting their names on their helmets, at least, which is not authentic, but at least for, for, for movie purposes. But it was for me to understand the geography and, like I said before, the cause and effect of action. Mm. Who is everybody? Who is the team? So getting deeper and deeper, more specific about it. And then being able to go through the material, break it apart and say, okay, I'm going to use this first, but then I have to go to that. And when you shoot everything at once, you might capture the same moment at the same time, but in movies, it happens sometime later. You know, yeah. it's one thing after another. It's, it's linear the action, but you have to give the idea it happens at the same time. So it's this expansion and contraction of time and understanding of geography at the same time. So I like to say it was painful. Just to go back quickly to Goodwill Hunting, there's some scenes there, you know, on a, on a rewatch recently, they're so naturalistic. They're almost kind of dogma-like, you know, the, the, the mini driver scenes with Matt Damon yeah. and the lightness of touch you must need not to make that kind of crumble or seem false in the edit. It's a very, very different skill to that uh, of, you know, of grappling something like you just explained from Black Hawk Down. Yeah, um, different sensibilities, but it's always about you know, finding that thing that is real, mm. you know, because everything beforehand is kind of like artificial. It's shot, it's done and stuff. But, you know, I mentioned this before, but, you know, when you, when you put something together and uh, the experience that you have as a viewer, that's a real thing. It's an emotion. If it's, it affects you, the music or the visuals or the story, you feel it. It's not fabricated it's yours you know it's it's real if you if it actually works but also you know seeing uh, uh the scene mentioned with uh mini driver and matt you know arguing in the bedroom there's not multiple cameras there's various takes but it's finding the the take the energy to build up that, that of, of how they argue that feels real I, I i mean it's visceral i loved it i mean i know because i reacted like, like that to seeing the raw material and that's what i want to give back Mm. Exactly that, as as seamless as I as I can, without breaking that uh, that that thing of it's real that moment when you feel it. But it starts, you know, very early on to be able to capture the viewer and and maintain that. So in a way, you have to play this. You have a storyteller, obviously. You're going to tell the story. You have a script. You have actors and directors and everybody, you know 
creating the story, showing it, creating the building blocks to that. But ultimately, when the pieces come together, you have to do justice to all the work that hundreds of people have done, but ultimately also satisfy a viewer, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, I love movies and, uh, you know, I want to be in the movies just like that. I may be crazy, but Black Hawk Down, there's a bit of it that reminds me of talk radio. There's a ticking clock element, yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's almost a kind of ship in the bottle uh, element to it. Well, you know, how, how did you get started on tour radio? How, how did you get working with Oliver Stone? Um, you know, when I went back to the States, I mean, I, I, um, I got a master's at UCLA, but my intention was always to come back to Europe and to be a filmmaker here in Switzerland. I mean, this was, was my home, but nothing was happening here film-wise. I mean, I was interested in documentaries, but I was just like, I saw my friends all doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I went back, but it, it was specifically that I, you know, rather than going and being a, a filmmaker or selling my script or doing the movie, I needed to make a living. And, uh, and I thought that if I want to be a director, the best thing to do is to be, work close to a director to learn, mm-hmm. you know, how that works. And uh, I had seen Salvador from Oliver Stone. I loved that kind of Again, visceral realism, social realism, I would call it. And um, through sheer uh, chance, I met uh, an assistant that was working with Claire Simpson, who was the editor on Salvador. I I was introduced to her. I asked her if I could be part of the team in the cutting room. She said, sure, but, you know, I'm full right now. We're leaving in a few weeks and they were going off to shoot Platoon. Well, then Platoon happened, best movie, best director, best screenplay, best editor. And I said, I definitely have to work with these people. So I went back to Claire and I was offered uh, a position as a second assistant on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And that was my first uh, you know, encounter with, uh, with Oliver. And so since Oliver was very prolific and uh, great writer, he had one project, again, one year after another, as we were editing or helping that he, he was writing and preparing the next project. So it was a small movie, talk radio, but he had offered it to David Brenner and Joe Hutching and they were the editors and I was their assistant. And then we went on to do uh, Born the Fourth of July. And so eh. both Joe and David were, uh, were the editors. I was like an associate editor. Oliver was moving me up, but Born the Fourth of July won an Oscar, mm-hmm. won an Oscar for editing, which also was a great script. Excellent performance by Tom Cruise, real story. He should have won an Oscar. Yes, absolutely right. And then, you know, we did The Doors, and then he moved me up again as co-editor. And then, uh, you know, JFK happened. And at this point, uh, David and Joe didn't want to do it. They were like, ah, not this one. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said- It was a mistake on their part. (laughs) No, no. The fact is that it was a mistake. It's just like, you know, working, you know, long hours, you kind of burn out. But it was a great opportunity uh, for me. Joe then eventually uh, came back and uh, we, so we did it together. And there was also other assistants and uh, people that worked with Oliver before that also were on it, uh, on the team. You know, obviously JFK is a, a, a masterpiece, a hefty piece of work about one of the more significant people in the 20th century. But I also wondered if there was something quite exciting for an editor to have a film that features live editing of the Zapruder tapes with the back and to the left, back yeah, and to the left. Yeah. You know, uh, there is editing happening inside that film. Uh, it's yeah. kind of a film about films in some ways. Yes, uh, it's true. I mean, the, the, it's it's a real artifact. It's a historic artifact. You can't change it. It's not manipulated. It's not digitally made or mm. you actually see it. The, the thing is, is that 
the, the great fortune that uh, Oliver found uh, somebody that had restored and repurposed the original Edmund from, from, from Zapruder at the lab. But it was, uh, you know, very, very close. I mean, generational-wise, you know, to that film. Yeah. So when he first showed us that clip, and he goes, he called us into a room and says, that's going to be my next movie. You go, what? I mean, you heard of the Zapruder film. People have seen it. But when the Warren Commission, you know, made their case about the killing and, and they list as evidence, uh, you know, the Zapruder film listed by frame numbers mm. and this and this happens and this and this happens. It's not the movie. When you actually see the film, you see what happens, right? Anyway, that became the, the focal point, not only of the film, but I mean, of the whole film, but also to go back to that, to that moment from the reconstructions in the opening prologue to returning to Daily Plaza, to understand the players, to understand the geography, understand the motivations, the concept of uh, the triangulation of fire, all that thing. It's building up, building up, building up. So by the point you get to the final act in, in, in the case, you're familiar yeah. with, with all the elements. And then, yeah, you break it apart. But it was, uh, it was one thing that, uh, in terms of editing, how do you uh, represent... Or how do you make your case, right? You can be very didactic and say, this happened and that happened and that happened. But what we discovered through the editing is that our necessity was to condense a long, long script. Mm. And the only way that to, to condense these long sequences was by restructure and by laying scenes on top of scenes. Basically, have various uh, lines of narrative happen at the same time, and you say that's impossible. It's very complicated to follow. It's confusing. But what happened is, is that through the editing, you can follow both a visual narrative, uh, audio narrative through dialogue. If the uh, the visuals are too fast, the dialogue will help. Uh, there's continuity of music mm. uh, that if nothing works, you, you get the, the feeling of music, sound effects. There are all various uh, modes of narrative that help the viewer visually and with sound jump from one layer to the next and, and, and get a picture and hopefully at the same time have all the elements present and make their own conclusion. You were talking about the pressure surrounding Black Hawk Down after 9-11. I imagine the working on a film about the murder of JFK just comes naturally with that pressure built in. Did you feel under pressure to not mess it up? Did everybody on the team feel as though this was a specifically important project for America? I mean, we felt the pressure in terms of the, uh, the vastness of the project, the history moment, but also I think we felt really confident in being in uh, Oliver's hands because he's very smart, a uh, student of history, he loved that subject. He had done a lot of research. So a lot of times, you know, we would have uh, elements, historic elements uh, that, uh, you know, he, we would incorporate for special black ops. If we talk about Lumumba or Mossadegh's killing in Iran, the CIA behind, who was behind it. These are things that I learned mm. by doing the research through, through Oliver. I mean, I didn't know all that stuff, you know. So we really were relying on, on Oliver a lot in, in, in terms of, having that, that uh, the uh, you know the expertise and the confidence to do that we were just trying to uh, 
again, just dramatically bring that to fruition and, and to make it accessible. But what happened is, is that, yes, it had a, a, a cause and effect that after the film, even though it was criticized for the point of view, that there was an opening and uh, congressional hearing about releasing certain yeah. documents. And it did happen. And the thing is, maybe the, the possibility of a conspiracy. You see, if the two people get it, yes, it's open to that. It's open to interpretation. So it did change history slightly, or at least give the possibility of opening up. Oh, I think it entirely did. I think it was a phenomenon, you know? So look, I mean, you you know, Oliver Stone, we've talked about Ridley Scott, but you've also worked with, you know, basically all my favorite directors, Sam Raimi, Michael Mann currently. Yeah. You know, when you're working with people with such careers and I suppose power in Hollywood, is there, is there a regular way that you approach all the work or is it all about different relationships with the different directors? Yeah, my work is the same. I mean, I really go deep into it. I, I love what I do, but it's really uh, at the service of, of story. But all relationships are based on uh, an element of, of, of trust on both sides, but also element of, uh, you know, for, for me to listen, but also to have uh, the freedom to express my opinion or to challenge or to help or say we need that, you know, and, and, and to be heard, you know, it's not a just one way thing because ultimately when you're in the cutting room, that's it. I mean, you know, you're making the film that people are going to see. The choices you make are, are very critical, you know, and you try to avoid outside influence. Because I know that sometimes when we work in the cutting room, and I mean, working with Bertolucci, and he would always have visitors come in, you know, and oh, come and say hi. And it kind of like disrupts this kind of vacuum, this bubble you're in, because you get lost you're in the movie and you work, and it always breaks down. But, you know, I kind of like, I continue working, and, you know, he talks and he has a cup of tea and so forth. And I know he doesn't like somebody being in there, but he, he has to do it. So one time this uh, AD comes by, you know, and just quite, I edit, you know, because he was just sitting in the background and she opens her mouth and she goes like, ah, but you know, remember, he says, says we don't talk in the cutting room. This is a sacred place. <laughs> no talking. It's true. When, when you have somebody else in the room, I can feel their eyes. Yeah, I can feel it's when you're in, in the movie theater, it's the same thing. Yeah. I can feel it. So yes, it's, you don't want outside interference. So look, last question. I mean, your, your next one that's coming out is Ferrari yes. by, by Michael Mann. As uh, an Italian, is that, uh, is that a passion project? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, Ferrari, I mean, being Italian, loving cars, I mean, he's, he's an Italian icon, one of the biggest Italian icon. I mean, worldwide, it's it's in a world brand now. I mean, but f it was a passion project for uh, Michael Mann for many years. I mean, I've known Michael for a long time. Uh, I, mean, I love his movies, you know, obviously Heat and all, amazing filmmaker. Great, absolutely. But uh, he, uh, he was, you know, just on social occasion, I'd run into him, you know, different places. He would say he had this project. He would love me to, to do it. I said, oh, that'd be awesome, you know? And so I'd read several versions of it because it was almost on the go. I mean, this is even, you know, when you've done like a film with uh, The Insider, you know, no, with yeah. Russell Crowe. I mean, even though I know Russell had offered it to him at that point, so many years ago. But always something you want to do. And he would uh, call me. I'm ready to go. I have the money to do this. You know, I'm going to start in three months. He would like you to do it. I said, Thanks, but I, 
I don't think I can. I'm going to do Ridley's film. Okay, that happened once, twice, three times. And then finally says, when are you going to stop working for Ridley? <laughs> so anyway, this time around, the timing worked. And uh, I got had the, you know, the awesome experience to work with Michael. Pietro Scalia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have a nice rest of the holiday. Thank you so Cheers. much. Thanks again to Pietro. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell.